I don't want to do what I'm doing, but I don't know. I don't know what it is that I want to do. And I thought, right, let's just let's just create change. So I, I sold everything. I, I sold everything until I had two bags, two bags of clothes. I threw away whatever was left. I gave to charity a, a number of bits, um, and I got down to two bags, and then um, and then flew down to Cape Town. We're on a mission. We're going to find and uncover the smartest, most successful entrepreneurs on the planet. Explore their highs, their lows, and how they ultimately mastered the game. I'm Martin Cook, and I'm excited to welcome you to the Smarter Destiny podcast. I'm grateful for you and your time. Now let's level up together. Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon, and welcome to another Smarter Destiny podcast, where today I've got my friend Dan Boya, <laughs> Boya on the on the show. We were, sorry, we were just chuckling off air um, about the pronunciation. Never mind. Dan's super awesome. He is the co-founder of Superseed.com, which is a um, investing company that likes to roll up their sleeves and really get involved when companies are super new, rather than you know the safe game that VCs play much later on. But Dan has a whole history of successful companies under his belt and a whole history of successful investments under his belt and so today we are going to unlock Dan a little bit and um, learn his story and figure out how on earth he got to this point where he's putting his money into other people's businesses um, so without further ado Dan how are you yeah I, I had you all the way till the end there and then everything went choppy and I was oh bugger when's my when's my moment so yeah thank you thank you so much for having me it's a pleasure I don't know if I can live up to that intro, but I'm going to try. Oh, um, I think you're being modest, Dan. And so um, I know that you're one of at least, you know, two two total listeners that we've had uh, on the stats. And so I'm very <laughs> honoured honored about that. It's like you and Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. So you're in a good group. Um, yeah. And um, and so I know that you're at least a little bit um, primed in terms of um, what these podcasts are about. And so um, we had a little chat off air about a logical start starting point and um, really I think a great starting point in this case would be how you began your entrepreneurial journey and if that works for you please paint a word picture let us know where you are what's going on and um, sure yeah sure 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 Um, I think most entrepreneurs don't set out to be entrepreneurs and I very much fall into that camp I think most entrepreneurs that I know, including myself, are fairly unemployable characters. Um, I, um, after leaving school, I was very unenamored, if that's a word, at school. I was not very academic. I had no real interest. I didn't want to go to university. I didn't want to work in a bank. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, and I was very fortunate um to be a very pretty young man. And I got offered to be in a boy band when I left school. So I didn't know what the heck I was going to do. Um, I got a, I got a, um, uh, a request casting, which is when you in the kind of the, the showbiz world, it's when somebody asks you to go and do an audition, you don't go for the audition, you get asked to go for an audition. it's, It's quite a rare thing. And I was in Simon Cowell's first ever boy band. So not knowing what I wanted to do when I left school. And then um, uh, I signed up at a modeling agency just before I left school. And Davina McCall was my agent. She's a wonderful woman. So without name dropping Clang, um, it just, it's worth kind of mentioning that, that she, she was my, my agent and she was an awesome, well, she is an awesome human being, super fun. And I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And I didn't know, I'd just left school and um, you know, very young and, and dumb and stupid. And I got this request casting 
And I, I had this op amazing opportunity and I can't sing and I can't dance. I'm, I'm completely talentless, which you could get away with in the 90s in a boy band. You can't get away with that anymore um, to, to be in a, to do this kind of musical thing. Um, and that I did for three years. And then when I left, I left the band in 1994. And then when I left, um, you again, you're unemployable. So I started unemployable. Come on, Dan. What, what was the band? You can't, you can't not name oh, the band. Sorry, sorry, sorry. It was called, the band was called Worlds Apart. Um, we did reasonably well. We had a, a number of top 20 singles. We had a top 10 album. It was, it was, uh, it was like a, we were kind of Z, Z list celebrities. We always kind of lived under the Take That banner. We were only put together because Simon Cowell couldn't buy Take That from our sister record company, which is RCA. We were with Arista. They were signed to, um, to RCA and they, he knew that the, there was going to be this boy band resurgence after kind of, um, I think it was a big dance scene. There was no boy bands in like the early, early 90s, late 80s. It was all kind of acid and um, I can't remember the other kind of music genres there were at the time. But jungle. It was not jungle. Jung it, no, it wasn't that. No, that all came later. Um, but he knew there was going to be this kind of resurgence of, of, uh, of boy bands. And then obviously then he took it on to, to do X Factor and, and the, the rest. Because everyone hated the manufactured nature. And he was, a, he was a, this is genius. All he did was he went to the market and said, okay, you don't like manufactured boy bands. I'll manufacture them in front of your face on television. <laughs> you vote for who you want. And, 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 the, and the cycle continues. So that was, that's like ridiculously clever and amazing. And he's now multi-multi-billionaire because of it. Um, so yeah, so that, so coming from not knowing what I wanted to do, leaving school to then going and doing something and traveling the world and being on top of the pops and, you know, performing at Wembley and being in the charts and doing all these amazing things, which I'm eternally grateful for because I've experienced things that most people wouldn't. But the flip side of that is that when you come out of something like that, it, what do you do? Um, you are doubly unemployable. No, not only do you not have any kind of foundation in a career you don't have any work experience but what the heck do you do so I, I went and worked um i was a tv presenter for a while i worked i did um, i don't know if you remember tv shows like the ozone and um, news round and broom cupboard back on on bbc back in the day and i did I some do. continuity links for um, um the children's channel which is one of the early cable channels and channel four and mainly in kids tv but i wasn't a very good tv presenter and then I, then there was this fashion shift, which kind of shifted the industry to these comedic style, cool, like Chris Evans and Johnny Vegas and these kind of cool, slightly kooky, ginger, odd kind of funny characters. And I was very much the boy next door. So I didn't fit the, the fashion and I wasn't a very good TV presenter. I could just about get away with it. And I never had enough time to learn the craft. Um, so that I did that for a couple of years and then I just couldn't get enough gigs to pay the mortgage. And then it's like, what the hell do you do? So um, I went and worked for Virgin Atlantic as a trolley dolly. So I took a job and this is odd. So you, one minute you're flying first class being kind of showered with gifts and you're very wealthy and all of a sudden you're, and by the way, when I left the band, I had to give all my money back and I'd broken a five album deal. So I had nothing. I, I, when I left the band, I, I had no money. I was kicked out and I, well, it was my choice to leave, but it was like very unceremonious. Um, so then I, I ended up working for a, um, for Virgin Atlantic, and I was fl I, I wasn't even good enough to serve first class or upper class as they called it. Whereas it was only maybe a year before I was flying in upper class, and that was that was a a massive come down. It was very um very humbling, and also um you you like you're serving tea and coffee, and you, you and you're having people asking you for pictures because they recognise you and remember you from being in the band or being on TV, and then all of a sudden you're earning fourteen thousand pounds a year serving tea and coffee. It was it was um. 
it was a, a very humbling experience. But anyway, I wanted to carry on traveling. It was the only way with no money I could carry on traveling. And I used to enjoy um, snowboarding over in, in California. So I'd fly over. I'd, I'd stay over in California. I'd go snowboarding, surfing, do whatever. I'd, I'd work back and then I'd fly straight back out. And I did that for about six months. That was great fun. Um, when I left, I said to my boss at the time, I said, I, I don't want to, um, I can't do this flying stuff anymore. This is miserable. Um, but thank you very much. And he said, but you know a bit about computers, don't you? And I'd always been kind of generally handy. I used to fix the in-flight entertainment systems on, on the planes and I used to do other things just with tech. So, so I said, yeah, I know a bit. I'm all self-taught. He said, well, can you, um, we've got this learning center. We've got like however many, 50 computers in a, in a block in, in the Virgin Atlantic cabin crew center. Can you build us or fix up the computers and build a learning center? I said, sure. So instead of leaving Virgin, I, I, I moved into the main office and I, I built a, um, um, built up like a little learning center for Virgin staff to learn new skills, whether it's um, desktop publishing or learning a new language or whatever it was using a computer. And that was kind of, that was my first foray into technology and also kind of coming from this slightly crazy um, world of, of um, bands and traveling and a bit of TV presenting and a bit of kind of that media exposure and then not knowing what the heck I wanted to do and then working for the airline to carry on traveling and having some fun and then fell in love with computers. So actually, this is what I want to do. And that would have been mid nineties, maybe 1996, 97, something like that. Just love computing. Then I went off and did all of my um, Apple certifications, Microsoft courses and learned all about you know, networks, infrastructure, building computers um, and software and the internet, because that was all very new back then in, in early early to mid 90s. That was not not what we know it as today. And that was my kind of, that was my run into technology. And then I set up a business that did IT consulting. And, and that's where that's where I got into tech. So that was that was my that was my early, early entry into the tech world. Absolutely um, phenomenal story. And by the way, um, folks listening, I actually had no idea that we've got a genuine um, celebrity in front of us. So, you know, um, you know you're welcome. You're welcome. So, um, and, and, you know, Virgin Upper Class, I, I very much, I, I like Virgin Upper Class. You, you picked a good airline, I would say, to, to do that. Um, and so, um, I mean, what an incredible journey, um, uh, you know, to, to uh, like, what a diverse um, range. I am curious, and this is probably not that relevant to the to the um, podcast, but I've got to ask. Um, you said that you had no particular particular musical talent. How no, do you? None. How do they? What's the smoke and mirrors that that enable someone with no musical talent to be a pop star? Well, I remember speaking to my manager when we first went for the auditions, and it was very much like X Factor is on the TV now. It just used to go on behind the scenes. Mm. So I got asked to go for an audition that was in Boulderton Street, which is just off Oxford Street, um, Oxford Selfridges. And um, it was a dance studio and you went down there and there were these amazing guys doing backflips and twirls and singing and performing their hearts out. And there I was, this young doofus from Croydon, kind of rocking up there because I'd been asked to go. Because they, they see, you know, pictures of people and they go, they go through whatever they're called, Z cards or cover shots. And they go through and go, right, he's the right look for the band. And I remember saying to my manager, or who the guy who became our manager, I said, like, I'm not, I can't really sing and dance. I'm not really, I'm not really a particularly good performer. Um, he said, but listen, he said, Dan, if you, if we can teach you, if you've got the ability to learn, then, you, then we're game on. If you, if you really can't, then we'll talk. But if you've got the ability to learn, then we're game on. I went, okay, fine. And what do you do when somebody gives you an opportunity like that? Um, 
you're 18 years old, you've just left school, you, you know that you don't really fit into the regular world. And um, what do you do? So I was given this opportunity, you know, fuck it, I'm going to go for it. Phenomenal. Um, yeah, I was just I was just curious about that. And so so you learned the skills on the job and, and, and to the recruitment, it was, you've got the look, the skills are secondary, we can teach those we can't necessarily teach the look and and yeah i mean keep in mind these these were the super cheesy days of i mean i, I don't think boy bands have moved on that far are they, are they still boy bands? i guess they're not called boy I, they're man bands. Like, what are they I, I don't i don't i don't really know but i definitely i definitely find myself going into full-on dad mode when i'm listening to the radio and then and then realizing i'm li- verbatim saying what my dad used to say when he used to listen to my music when i was younger yes. you know what is this music was better in my you know that kind of that kind of commentary so i imagine there are boy bands um still um and I, and and if one direction is still a thing then then they're definitely a boy band so um yes. <laughs> so and and i think they're still going guys i'm old forgive me um so so that brought you um into incredible um learning and i know richard branson is is big on um you know uh the the doing the extra bits for his staff members which obviously included um you know uh, the the free education i guess that this this education platform was was providing and um uh, you know and it sounds like you had like a, a bit of a playground in which to to craft your your you know your skill fine tune your art um in terms of the um the the computer programming and so you you left um you left virgin and you started doing um it consulting mm-hmm. um and how did um and how did that part of the journey kind of um go so now you've got clients right presumably yeah. and, you, and you're yeah. and you're working with them what was that like so i'm i remember reading a book called the e-myth by a guy called michael gerber i must have been i don't know when it was it must have been around that time kind of mid late 90s something like that mm-hmm. and uh, it very clearly spelled out that just because you can, I think his his use case or his case study was just because you can make pies doesn't mean that you can build a business that makes pies. And I thought it's always resonated with me. It's like, oh, so just because I can fix computers and install networks and teach people how to use software doesn't mean I can run a business that does those things. And oh shit, I really need to learn those skills. So I went and got a business coach. Um, and you have to go when you when you when you're looking for consultants or coaches and you're starting your first business, you generally don't really know what you're looking for or what you need, but you kind of know you need something. Um, and you have a few clients and you're making a little bit of money and you're not quite sure what you're doing. But you know, you need to make mistakes. You've got this guy. It's a horrible mess when you first start. Um, and I just devoured books. I devoured books. I took on the business coach. I went through, I guess. My, my, I went through a couple of consultants and coaches, and, I, and then my, my last business coach, I'm still very good friends with, and this is, blimey, 20, 20 years later. Um, and we're still good mates. He, he lives down in Australia. He lives down in Sydney now. We're still good mates, and we still talk. And the first, I think it's the first three years of business, whatever you're doing, you know, making pies, selling sandals, doing IT, whatever it might be, it's those first three years that are your to do your paid for MBA or your, it's really when you, I don't necessarily think that you can learn from books. I don't think you can learn from necessarily, you know, doing a university course or doing an MBA. The only way you really learn about entrepreneurship and business is by, by getting stuck in and starting a business and starting it. And it's really hard. 
it's really hard to not only do what you're doing, but also learn the skills to build the business that does what you do. It's, it's, it's ridiculously crazy, but something happens at the end of that third year or something happens in that third year where pennies start to drop and you realize that you know more than you thought you did or most situations that you find yourself and you go, I know the answer to that, I know the answer to that. But you do, it's it's painful and it nearly killed me and I was an emotional wreck and I was the poorest I've ever, well, not the poorest I've ever been, I've been, I'd been poor than that, but I was in a lot of debt because I'd, I put in some of my own money, I'd borrowed some money to start my first business and um, it's, it's quite soul destroying, but at the same time it makes you. So if it's in your blood, and I knew that I couldn't get a job, so it's not like I could go, do you know what, I'm going to give up and I'm going to go and work in Barclays. I couldn't do that. I had nowhere to go. Um, so um, if you are determined enough and, and, you, and, you, and this is in your blood, I think it's something that's inherently in you, that entrepreneurialness. A lot of my friends are extremely dyslexic that entrepreneurs are a bit mentally unstable at entrepreneurs. And I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure I live on all kinds of mental health spectrums um, and most of my entrepreneurial friends also do. Um, they're a bit cooked, um, and I think I'm definitely in that bracket. Um, but once you're on that road, and, and if you can get through those first three years, then you're off. I, I love that. Um, I love that. I'm laughing to myself because because um, it's it's just so true. Uh, I remember I remember being in a seminar and uh, or a conference or something and um cameron herald who was on the stage um and uh, he's a he's a phenomenal guy he's uh, agreed to do the podcast as well i'm very humbled by that um and um he he had everybody in the room stand up right and um and it was it was like sit down basically what he did was he started reading off um a bunch of sort of um what we thought were kind of attributes of entrepreneurs so it was you know you have wild mood swings stay standing if you have wild mood swings you know from time to time you know stay standing if um you can be you know uh, suddenly like really really excited and then suddenly really really scared or, or whatever it, it goes you know stay standing if you if you sometimes struggle to stay focused on one thing because there's other things which keep getting your attention you keep jumping about not getting and he's listing off all of these things and everyone's in the room like this there's like a few people have sat down in a room of a thousand and he goes right um you know ah I just read the um, the the top ten um, lists of symptoms for, and it was like bipolar disorder and and like like a bunch of like real things like that, and um, you know, and he was like, "Thank goodness you got through without kind of any sort of medical guy uh, or any particular type of medical guy noticing this before they just sedated you because because yeah. you're clearly ill, right?" And and um, but it was actually you know it was a it was an entrepreneurs conference. It was, like an incredible experience so i was smiling away then as you as you were um saying that and so um so you're learning um like you said you're learning on the job you're learning to sell pies whilst learning how to sell pies um or yeah you're selling pies whilst learning how to sell pies and um very smart move to to get yourself a business coach and after three years um you know pennies are beginning to drop things are beginning to make sense um presumably you've made a number of mistakes by this point um because that's normally where the learnings come from. Um, you only the hard stuff. You don't. You never learn from good experiences. You never learn from making sales. You never learn from servicing customers properly. You never learn from things going well. You only learn from the from the fuck ups. You, and um, that's the same in life. I mean, that, you you only learn about relationships when you argue. And you, I don't really believe you have a good relationship with somebody until you've fallen out. So there there, there are. 
you need to kind of almost go to the darkest depths of, of a lot of the, the business skills that you learn. You need to understand the parameters of what those skills are, what the worst version of that is and what the best version of that is. And you don't really understand that that scope and and where that works and how that works for you um, and, until you until you make some serious clangers. Phenomenal. And so um, and so this this period of time. So you've done three years. Are you still an IT consultant at this point? Yeah. Yeah, so we're we're effectively selling mainly into the SME and mid cap world. We're main we're selling um, uh, coaching services, so we're helping people use software and, and understand computing and the internet and software as a concept and applying it to their business. And we're also installing networks and we're installing computers. So we're doing everything from the basic tin all the way to how do you best get the most out of this to apply to your business and marry your, what you want as a business and how you either make or save money, because that's the only two things you can do, ultimately make somebody money or save them money, um, and how you marry whatever that process is in using technology. And so how did that, um, I mean, is that company still in existence? Are you still running that company? No, I, I sold it to my business partner in 2009. Um, I, um, I was doing a number of other consulting jobs because being having a, a fizzy brain means you get bored quickly as i'm sure i don't need to tell you or any of your listeners and when that happens you become quite disruptive and destructive in your own business and i didn't really appreciate this at the time but i was a bit of a pain in the ass for my business partner um i was doing other things i was being distracted i was doing other kind of um, consulting gigs i was doing some other coaching gigs I was, I was actually doing some show hosting and some other entertainment stuff as well but mainly corporate gigs. And I, I just knew that there was something that wasn't right. Um, um, but I wasn't facing the fact that I didn't want to be in my own business anymore. And I didn't, I didn't, I did, I wasn't very honorable about that with my business partner. Um, he understood and he, and we got through it, but I, I ended up saying to him, you know, I'm just, I, I'm not, I'm not in this anymore. Um, and he bought the business off me or he bought my shares. So it, it all worked out well, but I, I, looking back, I handled it really badly. Okay, and but but you know you obviously had the itch at that point, and did you do you know what that it, what you wanted to do next, or did you just think no, I like, just uh, want to get yeah. out? The other the other kind of the opportunity is created in space, um, and I think the the best thing you can do if you're not sure of what you want to do next is create space. So I I packed up and moved to Cape Town. I wasn't married. I didn't have any children at the time. Um, uh, I had some money in the bank. Um, I was living on a boat in, in London and I remember lying in, I had this massive Dutch coal steam and I remember lying, lying in bed and, and uh, I know that I'm, I don't want to do what I'm doing, but I don't know, I don't know what it is that I want to do. And I thought, right, let's just, let's just create change. So I, I sold everything. I, I sold everything until I had two bags, two bags of clothes, gave everything away. I had a house down in Sussex at the time as well. And I opened my door, said to my neighbors, come and take whatever you want. I had, a, I had three or four cars, two motorbikes, I sold those emptied the garage to my neighbors, just take it. They emptied the house and I threw away whatever was left. I gave to charity a, a number of bits um, and I got down to two bags and then, um, and then flew down to Cape Town. Wow. Um, I had an ex-girlfriend that was South African and my girlfriend at the time also needed to renew her visa and she was South African, so she needed to go back to South Africa. And I'd been there, I've been to Joburg and I loved South African people and loved the place, but I'd never been to Cape Town before. And I thought, what's the worst that happens? I don't like this, I go to Buenos Aires. What's, what's the worst case if I don't like Buenos Aires? I go to Sydney, I love Sydney, I've been there before. So I was gonna do this kind of Southern Hemisphere sweep around the world. And I, got, I went to Cape Town and just stayed and fell in love and stayed there for nearly five years. 
Wow, um, incredible! I, I mean, I'm, I'm still, I'm still processing the the the, the minimalization um, and 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 the the I mean, the freedom that what you must have felt by actually just getting rid of all your possessions to the point where yeah, your life is in two right. bags, like proper caveman style, like how it's meant to be, being able to. The best carry, thing I yeah. did. I think I think it saved me. I think my brain was so fizzy. I didn't. Being in London, I was born in London, I was raised in London, um, but at this point I'd lived in LA for a bit, I, I'd lived in Miami for a bit, um, I was in Miami for about a year and I, I'd lived in um, LA maybe six months on and off, um, but but this was this was never, I, I, with always the plan to come back to London, but this was, I'm, I'm off, this was... The only way to 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 create change is to is to absolutely mix it up. And I thought, you know what? Let's. Um, what's the worst that can happen? Just go for it. So I wanted to almost rid myself of all the chattels of life, all of the that London. You always feel like in London you have to do the deal or you have to be the big man or you. Yeah, and it's it's a constant rat race. And I thought I don't want this anymore. I don't know what I do want, but I know that I don't want this. Mm. So the only way to to find out what it is that you do want is to create some space and to create some change. And I thought start by I, <clears throat> it's sometimes not good to run away from your problems, and I and I, I have no doubt there was an unhealthy, an unhealthy um, part of me that was trying to run away. Um, but there was a healthy part that was very consciously saying, "Create change. Doesn't matter. Get on a road. Doesn't matter if it's the right road. If it's not, you'll change and, and just just create that change." Mm. Oh, it sounds quite controlled to me. It, well, it doesn't sound like a like a um, you know a breakdown. It, it sounds actually quite controlled and deliberate. And so, so you found so you're now in Cape Town, chosen because um, your your girlfriend needed to renew her visa in in South Africa, and and you'd been there before. Um, what? How did you? How did you start that process? You're now in this you know this this brand new town in a in a different country. Um, what did you begin to do? How did you begin to find yourself or find what you wanted? So, um, so we landed, it was, yeah, it was September, 2010, I think we landed. And then, um, I went, I went and bought a car. So I went and bought this old classic Mercedes. I love old cars. I love you know, anything to do with machinery or gadgets. And I bought this old Merc and they've got some lovely old tin down there. Some really, and it's cause it's quite a warm climate, nice, nice condition cars. And, um, we found this awesome place down on the beach. So, um, we um, bought a place right down on, uh, if you know Campsville, there's a very swanky area of Cape Town, which is right down on the waterfront. It's um, beautiful beaches. I think we were, I think we stayed on probably the, the most beautiful beach in, in Cape Town, I would argue. Um, had this lovely apartment down there, which is this beautiful kind of open, everything was all open. Even the, even the bathroom was completely open plan. Um, and just kind of sat there and, and wondered, wondered what to do next and then then you very quickly realize there's more to life than just doing the deal or or just trying to you know be the big man in a meeting and and be the be the loudest shouter in the room and you you find mountains and you find wide estates and you find mountain trails and cycling and people and energy and love and connection and and London is great for the, the commercial go and the, and the and the kind of the that energy around business and and doing the deal. And Cape Town is all about the complete opposite. And I had accidentally, but maybe accidentally on purpose, found this real connection to nature and to people and to love and to another side of the universe that I'd never allowed or explored around um, energy and feeling and emotion. 
And I think it saved me. I think it, it, it reset me to make me, to make me realize that there's more to life than just trying to, trying to be successful in business, which I had, and I hadn't been, I, you know, I'd, I'd lost some money. I'd made some money, but I, you know, I was not okay, but, um, it was, it was, it was a lovely reset to make me realize that there's a balance in life. It's not, ju- it's not just about trying to be a successful entrepreneur. So uh, it's, it's actually quite incredible. So you're in South Africa, you've minimalized everything, you, you know, you've, you've, you've simplified everything. And, and in my head, it's so, it's so ironic that the, it should be so easy to have less, right? Like that, that should be like the natural progression. It should be the hardest thing should be to, to have more. And yet so many people, you know, cover um, minimalizing. It certainly sounds like, um, like a dream to me. And uh, so I'm just sort of grappling with that irony, but I can totally picture, um, you know where you are you're in this beautiful um beautiful city in a beautiful country um free you know free to 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 do as you please and to take in nature uh, and so on and that must have been so deeply um fulfilling and but at some point now you must have started getting some clarity around what you want to do next because at some point right you must have now got your foot back onto some sort of rung on some sort of business ladder. And so what, what was, um, what sort of was the next step, um, for you when you, when you were out there and that clarity? Well, there's, there's always inertia in anything you do in anything in life, whether it's business or in personal, there's an inertia, there's a time lag between making a decision and doing something, or there's a time lag between doing something and then feeling the impact of something. So we live, we don't just live in instant, well, everyone is saying we do live in the world of instant gratification. We kind of don't because if you think about, as an example, how social media is actually disconnecting people, we're only now understanding the the real psychological impact of certain aspects of social media where you're not more connected, you're actually less connected. But there's been that inertia period between having this amazing connectivity and being able to see what everyone is doing every minute of the day and then realizing actually it makes you feel less connected and more empty. Mm. So there was between landing and I was a bit not mentally messed up, but I was a bit when you land in a new place and you've got all these amazing things, you still don't even know how to buy car insurance or to get electricity connected to your house. So you are completely running blind. And obviously, my girlfriend at the time, we, we broke up fairly, fairly soon after moving there. But um, um, she, we, I, I wasn't completely running, running blind with regards to you know, who to speak to about whatever their version of council tax or how to register a car or how to get house insurance or whatever. It wasn't, I wasn't completely blind, but it was, um, it was, it was quite, it was quite difficult being in a completely new setting and then working out everything from new. And on top of that, there was this inertia period of wanting change and to create it. And then all of a sudden you've got it and you're like, shit, what do I do now? How am I supposed to feel? What am I supposed to do next with my life? And then you very quickly realize, well, not quick, it took me a good few months. You go, ah, this is the space that I asked for. This was exactly why I came here, settle into this and just kind of listen, listen. So I would, I was, I, I lived at the bottom of what's called lion's head, which is the bit next to table mountain that looks a bit like a lion lying down. It's called lion's head, you know. Of course it is, um, and that's uh, that's a thousand. A thousand no, it's about six hundred meters, and it's some of it's quite scrabbly when you you climb up these um, uh, 
this kind of rocky face up, up to this very, very beautiful plateau at the top of Lion's Head, which is like a, a slightly lower, lower version than Table Mountain. And you've got these amazing views and you can just breathe and you can see things. So I used those kinds of excursions into nature and I got into cycling and the, the peninsula in Cape Town is just stunning. It's the most beautiful cycling or motorcycling routes there are. Um, so I, had, I bought a motorbike as well. So I used that as, and I used to go drumming. I, was, I used to, slight sideways tangent, I used to go drumming with a friend of mine. We used to play the, what are they called? Gem, gem, I can't remember what they're called. They're the hand drums. I think they're called gem, gembes. Or There's a local word for this type of drumming. And we go up to what was called Palm Beach, which is just up the road from my house, in this deserted little kind of rocky beachfront area. And we would just sing and smoke weed and play drums and just, and just, just absolutely almost let it all hang out. So that was all part of this inertia period between creating the change, landing, kind of creating this environment. But it's, it's not easy and it's not, it doesn't make you happy because you're quite confused and it's quite, it's quite an unusual change and you don't really know. I didn't know anyone. I, I knew a few people, but randomly and I got to know people. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was in a completely new house. I, I didn't know. I, everything was new. So th th there was this very kind of strong juxtaposition between creating that space and, and those amazing natural experiences which allowed you to breathe, but also quite tense and anxious moments where you're working out new stuff. And it, even though it sounds silly now looking back on it, you know, how to get car insurance, you know, how hard is that? But one very simple, simple, stupid point is that the internet and, and the web down in South Africa, even in 2010, didn't really work. I mean, internet connections, if they worked, were like one meg down, you know, 10K. It was, it was very, very clumsy. And going to a website to buy car insurance didn't really exist. It kind of did, but it was rubbish. So there were some things that you kind of instantly miss and instantly aren't easy. You have to, I used to go and pay my phone bill. I used to drive down to the, the phone bill shop to go and pay my phone bill in cash. I mean, it was silly things like that where South Africa and Cape Town especially looks very zhizhi and everything works nothing you scratch a little bit and you're in africa I and mean, people forget that it's a very thin european veneer on an african country and it's very very difficult and there's there's a lot of stuff that everyone knows about south africa um but the the, the infrastructure is, is very far behind the uk so um Wow. So, uh, I mean, again, so, I, you know, I can I can I can picture this and, and certainly, yeah, I bet there's a lot of things which um, the 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 sort of um, the proper things that we need in life, unfortunately, uh, you know, the documents for the this and the and the license for the that and stuff. And, yeah, you have to go through that process and figure out how to do it um, in a country. And so you're you're. You know, you're you're finding yourself. Um, the the drum circle sounds fucking cool as well, by the way. Um, and that was very that was very cool. And and so when when did you like, like what I'm curious about is like when did you then transition from this? Like, did you did you set up a business in South Africa, or did something pull you back to the UK, or like what was the next step in your um, uh, career from this point? So I I was there maybe. Maybe six months for six months and eating, breathing, and running, and cycling, and climbing mountains, and all that stuff. And then I wrote to a couple of friends of mine in the UK and said, "Right, I'm bored now. I want something to do, and I think I'm kind of re-energized, and I'm, I'm getting back on it. And what do I do? Who do you know in Cape Town?" And a very dear friend of mine, Ollie, wrote to me and said, "There's a guy that you've got to meet. It's this guy called Richard. He is awesome. He's in tech." 
He's a big loud mouth. He knows everybody. He's a wonderful human being. You've got to meet him. So bless him. He set up a breakfast, what he called the breakfast of champions down in a very swanky restaurant down in just down the road from where I was living. Um, and he invited 10 of his techie investor startup guys. So all of his, all of the local Cape Town network, which turned out to be almost like um the equivalent of like the the Cape Town technology royalty and Rich knew, no, no, still does know know everybody, and he connected me with and uh, at least two that I can think of two of the guys that were from that there's maybe ten of us at this breakfast two of those guys have become including Rich and me th- three of the guys have become ridiculously close friends, um, and the other guys they're awesome human beings and that kind of opened up the business network world because wherever you go you need to know people it's all about who you know what you know as everyone knows and that was my kind of connection back into the technology the startup the software the entrepreneur world um so i said look here's what here's what i can do here's where i am let me know what's going on and then from that um i then with my girlfriend at the time set up a, a social media fulfillment house where we would take on we, we hired a bunch of guys and we would take on all of the contracts that um big um social media in those days brands knew that they needed to be on social media but they couldn't do it they didn't really know how to manage facebook accounts or manage twitter accounts or whatever at the time pinterest instagram was a thing but not really a massive thing then so we would take on all of the big campaigns for L'Oreal, American Express, Saint, all these big brands, and fulfill them. So we would be, whenever you interacted online with a big brand, it would invariably be one of my people. And now they were sat in a, in a room in Cape Town. Um, it was a horrible business. It was very high margins. It was mis- dealing with social media back then. I mean, even now, I, I don't know how people do it. It's just a miserable experience. Um, <laughs> It's humanity at its worst. It's when people are when people can hide behind a screen and hide behind a, a Twitter avatar or a Facebook, whatever it is. It's like people are shit, and so you're you're dealing with with the worst of humanity. I, I'm I'm overcooking it a bit, but it's and also it was a horrible. You're not. Business. You're not. It was I agree. a scalable yeah. business. It was everything that I didn't want to do. It was a service business, even though it was high margins. We made we made a fair chunk of money. I just didn't like the business. I didn't like doing the business, and I didn't like the content of the business. And it was just it was a bit sticky and horrible. So, ended up selling parts of that to an advertising company. Um, some people left, and we kind of just let let the rest of it just kind of fritter away. I didn't want to do it anymore. Um, and then I had um, a, a friend of a friend ask me to run an accelerator down there, which is actually an incubator, not an accelerator. And by that, I mean, it's where startups get investment when they've got nothing to something rather than something and they accelerate to something more. This is the zero to something, which is the incubation stage. And I ran that for a year. And then my mum fell super sick. And this was 2014 by now, 13, 14. Uh, my mum, who's always been a, a sickly woman, she and I'm the only living relative left. And she, she fell super sick and she was in a coma for six weeks. So I had to fly back to the UK to look after her. And then she was, she ended up being in hospital for five months. And then, so I was flying to and fro um, Cape Town and I was doing some other consulting gigs and helping people build business. And I invested in a couple of um, software businesses personally. And I ran the accelerator, invested in seven more um, so startups, incubation startups five of which got follow-on funding and, and, and two of which did quite well. And then um, 
was to, flying to and fro Cape Town, London to look after mum or be, be uh, you know, next to her while she was in hospital. And then you end up, I ended up starting to take kind of English thing. People would ask me in London and I'd been out of town for, for four, four and a bit years. They're saying, look, can you, um, can you help me with this project or can you, can you, can you, and you end up kind of getting sucked back into London life because I was back in London. Um, and then I ended up um, trying to, what's the right terminology, trying to um, support a, an investment group that were, that were doing a new business builder type of accelerator in the UK and it didn't go particularly well. Um, we, did, we had, there were six businesses in the portfolio and it was my job to try and rescue two. And I, one, I turned around to something that's still going, but it's, it's a bit of a zombie, but we'll do something with it. And the other one we had to close. Well, we, actually, we didn't. We, we sold it to a big um, uh, HR company, and they, they, then, they then squashed and killed it. But we got some money back for it. But we didn't, we didn't manage to do what we wanted to do with it. So this, by this point, I've kind of gone, blimey, what do I do now? Do I sell up Cape Town or do I, do I um, go back, come back from London? What do I do? And... I didn't, I, I'm still not sure I made the right decision, but I ended up going back to Cape Town one last time, selling up and then, and then moving Lockstock back to London. And that's when I met my current business partner at Superseed. And then from working together on the previous rescue job, if you like, um, we looked at each other and hang on a minute, we've got some money, we've got the skill, we've built and sold businesses, we know how to do this. Why don't we do this for ourselves? And that's where Superseed was born. Amazing, amazing. Okay, so I've got a, I've got a few um, follow up questions. Um, first off, definitely, it's definitely something like a little thread that I'd identified. So, you, so we're going back to the the social media agency for one of a better a better term. So you're, you're setting up the social media um, for you know a time where people knew they needed it but didn't know how to do it. And then you said, so we were doing that for American Express, L'Oreal. I, I've got to pull at that thread. How did you go from just founding a company to um, to to having such um, you know, prominent um, companies as your client? Was that just the connections that you'd made in uh, with this Breakfast of Champions group or was it something else? No, it was nothing to do with that, actually. I mean, there are two types of sale in the world. There's, there's kind of channel sales and there's direct sales. And um, if you want to sell into the big corporates or you want to sell into the big guys, you generally need to go through a third party. Generally speaking, you can't as a, as a sole trader or as a small business, you can't pick up the phone. It's actually, that's not true. Some people do. But generally speaking, you have to go through a third party or a distribution channel of some description. So I found all of the agencies that were serving um, the, the companies that I wanted to speak to and I gave them the skills and the tools to be able to sell me into those big clients and it's it's, it's something that I, I, I teach my startups that I'm working with now so it's about finding the right always find the right problem to solve and always find a compelling event or something that's really problematic for somebody that has your your ideal client in their database and has the relationship in their database. And that's how you do it. So that's how we sold these big, these big customers. We found the agencies that were serving them. I spoke to the smaller guys that I can solve this problem for you. Um, you, you generally do some kind of test case or you, you, you make sure that, that they trust you. There's a trust building or relationship piece, but you can very quickly get through that if you know how to do it. And then um, they sell for you. Amazing. Amazing, and what um what a um yeah what a smart way to go about it because yeah like why should they trust you you know who are you like you've just started that sounds like a big risk to most companies who are very risk adverse and 
Um, and so I, I like that strategy. Okay, so fast forward um, um, a, a little bit. So we're now um, you've you've partnered up with um, Mr. Jensen, and um, you founded uh, Super C. So so he was one of your partners on the um, on the UK incubator, uh, or the or the is that what you called it in the UK? The investment. Well, so so. so- the incubation is is nothing to something. Accelerating is accelerating is something to something operational, and then VC is obviously taking it from that. That's a very simplistic way of looking at it, and that's not totally totally true. But that that's the kind of the bare bones of it. So we were doing so Superseed. It's not an accelerator. It's a fund, but we operate a hands-on or applied VC model where it looks an, a, a bit like an accelerator model where you're working with the startups to get them to that million pounds in, in revenue as quickly as you can without the wheels falling off. But it's not an accelerator model where there's 40 startups and they get $100,000 of AWS vouchers and they get connected to this mentor and they do that demo day. That's not what we do. So Superseed is all around supporting founders and entrepreneurs to get to that million using real hands-on experience rather than kind of more ethereal. This is what I think in an advisory role, it's a much more consultative approach if they want it. Sometimes they don't need it. Sometimes it's not the right time. Um, But if they need it, then, then... arrogantly enough we, my partner and I have been there and bought it we know how to sell to the to the big guys and invariably we we will be able to cut some corners and get you there quicker that that's that's the pitch nice and so tell me a little bit about um supersede in terms of uh the the clientele you're looking for um and what they kind of look like in terms of their demographics and then um how the supersede program might be applied so it so it's, it's quite a simple a simple pitch quite a niche pitch so we only deal with b2b startups um late seed stage now what that means to us is they have to have a few clients they've got a little bit of revenue but they're still very firmly planted in problem solution mode where they're not really at that repeatable scalable profitable kind of product market fit stage so they've got something they know they've got something they're out of mvp they're out of nappies and they're now looking to get to that operational how do we become an operational business get to that that 80 grand mrr where they're kind of going i've got this now i've got this all i need to do is fill the hopper, the sausage machine will do its thing and, and you know, we're off and we're off and running. So we fit very firmly post MVP and pre series A in that kind of, in that kind of messy bit where people are trying to, trying to create scale, not just growth, but trying to create scale businesses. And it's our mission to, to, to get them firmly into that, into that state or state of thinking. Um, they can be from any sector. So we're completely sector agnostic. We don't generally do anything with AR, VR, blockchain, or all the other bullshit acronyms that are that are bounced around, they're they're not real. They're not they're not kind of they're. I mean, there's some nice aspects to like um, some kind of AR stuff. I'm sure there's gaming or or some kind of medical or education application, but it's a lot of press and hot air, really. Same with blockchain. So, uh, your, so your customers, um, customers, or, or, the, or, the, or the businesses that you're helping, you're working with, um, so um, you said they're doing, uh, like, they've, they've, they've got their MVP sorted and they're doing a little bit of revenue and you're helping them get to that 80, 80 grand MMR, MRR. Sorry. Um, what, what is a little bit of revenue, what, if you could quantify that? 
anything it could be it could be customers that aren't mum and dad it could be it could be 500 quid it could be 5000 pounds it's something that shows some kind of validation to the model if somebody's willing to pay you something for what you do and more than one so two three four five um, one of our startups when we took them on had one customer but had four four in the hopper and it was quite a long sales cycle um and um one of our later seeds that we're having seed, later stage companies has probably got 200 customers. So it doesn't, it doesn't massively matter, but there has to be some validation that you have, that you have a business, whether it's three customers or 300, but there has to be something. And what businesses do you really like working with? I don't know that what context you're getting at, but what I, I don't massively care what they do. I love people and I love the energy of people. I, one of the um, companies that are about to invest in do a, a property management portal and the CEO can, is bouncing off the walls and he's smart as a whip and he's got it. Every question I asked him, he's got it. He's documented it. He's not just full of hot air. He's documented it. He's sorted it through. It's very, very kind of rigorous and, and considered. And working with people like that, I find fascinating. Working with people that want to not change the world because that sounds bullshitty, but the people that just want to, they want to make that, they want to make this and do this and kill this thing that I, and one of the companies who just invested in, um, they do, they do, um, uh, handwritten notes at scale. So they've got an, a, an AI engine that, that, that takes hand, handwritten formats and, and writes letters for you and does kind of marketing and sales notes. Um, so when you're, when you're choosing um, or ultimately partnering with, uh, with the various businesses that you're, you're investing in, what sort, of, um, what sort of monetary amount do you typically invest? What's the range there? And what's the typical range in terms of equity that you would um, expect in return? So it's a fairly standard seed model. It's 100 to 500K is our monetary value. And we would look for any between 5 and 25, 30% for that. Okay, cool. Um, so... Um... Uh, so you've, you've, you're working with some um, fant like fascinating businesses right now. And so really, what, what is the, the secret source, um, do you find? Like, what, what is the, um, your secret source that, um, that you... So you're looking for a gap that's the shape of your secret source or a puzzle piece gap or whatever. What is the thing that you know that you can consistently bring time and time again to add value to these businesses? So the, the main focus that we, that we focus on, to use the same word twice, is, is go-to-market strategies and sales. The main thing that startups don't want to do is sell. The main thing that they struggle with is how to get out of problem solution mode into product market fit mode and then sell. How do they get that go-to-market strategy right? And that's getting the right people to do work with the right product and get the right packaging and the right positioning. And it's, there's quite a number of things that you need to consider. But ultimately, if you can sell, you're onto something. So we focus all getting down and dirty with sales, getting right in the hub of it, picking up the phone, working out sales strategies, working out marketing channels, working out distribution and channel. That go-to-market strategy is what my partner and I know. It's what we can do. And that's, that's what we and as operators, most investors and funds don't come from an operations background. They mainly come from investment or wealth management or the money world. We are dirty operators, if you like. We've been there and done it and bought the T-shirt. And we like to think that that makes the difference with the startups because 
they know that we're talking from experience and not just like, oh, well, here's my advice as to how you sell to Esso or American Express or Sainsbury's or whatever it might be. It's, um, it's not what you think and it's not probably how you think you should do it. So it's all about rigor, structure and go to market and then, and then helping them do the dirty end of sales. Okay, so you've so you've got your clients and um, you've you've helped them uh, grow to around that eighty thousand MRR mark. Is that when your work with them has kind of uh, finished, or like what happens sort of at that point? Well, there are there are a couple of um, kind of milestone markers. There's the there's the maybe twenty to thirty k MRR where startups will get a feeling that they're they're shifting into product market fit because they'll they're starting to get a real sense for what they're selling and how they're selling it and who they're selling it to. Then there's a the 50k MRR where there's a there's another step change where they're starting to feel like they they've got this repeatable scalable profitable model coming into play now and that's where we'll start to open the doors and have conversations with the follow-on investors who uh, tend to submit the million million pound magic marker but it's a little bit before then where we'll start to either change the way that we support our companies and or have conversations with investors that will that will start to look to take them to the next valuation milestone and so, um, so, uh, so, I mean, that's awesome, and that you're helping them um, transition and get the get the next, um, you know, um, like investment uh, chunk and so on. But if so, if you um, at that point where you invested in the first place, if you're um, in return for the money taking up to say thirty five percent, do you is it is it pretty standard that you would then get diluted at the next um, liquidation event, or or do, does the oh absolutely. Sure. So, well, we can't do anything that, that disincentivizes the entrepreneurs or, or creates any kind of um, shitty scenario where, um, where the investors have taken too much equity or there's any kind of there's a there's a balance to be found between the amount you invest and the amount of equity you take and, and how that how that works. But it has to be a completely transparent and b totally suit the the future rounds of the business so we will only take the equity or the or invest the amount of cash or get as involved as as makes sense for the business so you don't always get it right but that's the intent if you try and take too much or take too much control or get too involved it just it just creates a terrible mess and you no decent investor will ever want to do that um, I mean, there are, like in any industry, there are some sharks, but that's that's just stupid and pointless. So that, that you need to not just think about the rounds that you're doing now, but you need to think about the Series A and the B and the and the follow-on rounds that are coming, and make sure that your your deal isn't going to screw up any kind of future potential deals. Nice. And so, um, so typically, um, when that next round comes, it's it's standard for you to be diluted. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you don't have any, any special terms over anyone else. There might be some, uh, there might be something sometimes put into an auctions pool where there is, um, there, there was an odd scenario where there was almost a down round with one of the deals that we were doing where, um, there was a slightly larger than normal options pool created and the founders were part of that options pool. So, it, and I won't go into the boring details, but sometimes you use the available financial mechanics to create the right energy and structure around the business. Um, but we'll get them, ultimately we'll get um, uh, the, the same terms as, as everybody else and absolutely um, diluted with everybody else. 
Fantastic. And so, um, at this point in the in the podcast, we now typically change gear a little bit, and we go into uh, the quick fire question round, where I'll ask the questions quickly. You can take as long as you want. Are you um, are you up for that, Dan? I am up for it. I'm comfy. I'm wearing my comfy shoes. I'm ready. Fantastic. Right. Number one. Are there any unusual things you eat or drink regularly and why? Oh, Jesus. No unusual things, but I have a massive addiction to sugar and coffee. (laughs) Okay. Um, How do you get yourself into a state of flow? Heavy banging house music. Ah, any particular um, uh, DJs or artists that you're a fan of? No, but it has to have a it has to have a kicking bass line. Anything that that makes my heart thump with bass. Yeah, nice. Is there a particular subgenre of of house that you're a big fan of? Uh, it really heavy dance. It's got to be you know that the stuff where you stood in the speaker when you when you took too many illicit substances and and the back of your head is vibrating. Nice, <laughs> I like that. Um, what habit or opinion do you have that other people tend to disagree with? Honestly, I'm a bit too candid. My partner doesn't like me for it. Um, most people that I deal with don't like me for it initially. Um, so it's uh, sometimes I can be a bit too blunt. I don't think that's a bad thing. Do you, are you pretty good at um, saving yourself if you're if you cause damage with your bluntness? No, I mean I, sometimes <laughs> sometimes it has come across as a dick, and I don't mean to. It just I as you get older, I tolerate less and. Um, and there are some things where people are just being stupid and they just need to be verbally slapped. But most of the time, it's not my place to do that. <laughs> Fair enough. I love that attitude, by the way. Um, if you ran a school but could only teach one non-traditional lesson, what would that be? Relationships. Ooh, what would that class look like? <laughs> um, uh, it, would be, it would be how, how to engage with other human beings meaningfully. I like that. And what kind of um, advice might you offer if you were keynoting the first lesson? Probably to be more candid and to be more honest and upfront, because there's a lot of lies, deception, bullshit, personal and commercial worlds. And I think the world would be a better place if we were more honest, direct and open with each other. Nice. Right on. What book or books had the biggest impact on your life? The Road Less Traveled by M. Scott Peck for personal life. There was a chapter in there on love and probably the E-Myth in business. It's a very simple book. I mean, the E-Myth is like toilet reading stuff. Um, you can kind of read it in one shit. But the, and it's the, same, it's the same message repeated over and over again. But it's a very worthy message if you want to take the entrepreneurial journey. Definitely. And uh, yeah, that's definitely like a rite of passage. Um, the myth movers um, yes. did Michael, Michael Gerber, I believe. Um, yeah. What does the th- first 30 to 60 minutes of your day look like? And what time do you t- temp- typically get up? I get up and I've got a young child. So I typically get up anywhere between four and six. And the, my first hour is usually paranoid, confusion, anxious, getting in the shower, trying to get my shit together, work out where I am and who I am and what I need to be doing with my day. <laughs> nice. So c- controlled, um, controlled, uh, what's the word? 
super chaos. executive, yoga-tastic, super controlled, um, I'm in my zen, absolutely none of that. No. And does the time that you wake up then vary because of the young child or? Um... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he doesn't sleep. He's a bastard. He doesn't sleep. And um, uh, my wife is amazing. And um, uh, but at the end, if you have kids, you just don't sleep. That's the deal. <laughs> no, I feel you there. Any advice for your previous boss or bosses in general? Uh, no, is the short answer. I don't, I've, only, I've only ever had one kind of boss, if you like, and that was the guy at Virgin. But I, I didn't even see or know him until I told him I was leaving. So I don't really. So I, no, is the short answer. Where do you go, or what do you do to get inspired? Um, nature, anything in nature. N- n- normally, normally woods, trees, grass, and secondarily, it'll be beach, sea, water. Nice. And why do you why do you think that is so effective? Uh, nature is it has the answer to everything. Being in nature connects us to who we are, to the universe, all that kind. Of, if you believe in that stuff, and I do, and um, as we remove ourselves from nature, we become less decent human beings and more depressed and more troubled. And and you need you need to ground yourself. You need to take your shoes and socks off and touch the earth. You need to swim in the sea. You need to be near trees. It, it's it is the the root of everything in in all puns intended. Love that. If I gave you five thousand, well pounds, because you're British. If I give you five thousand pounds, how would you double it in twenty four hours? Uh, the only way to do that is to gamble, and the only way to to gamble is to is to um, take some advice and try and get some inside track information and then go and go and punt it on the GGs. <laughs> What's the best advice ever given to you? Fish where the fish are. I like that. Do you want to delve into that a bit more? It was a conversation with a guy that I loved and respected that we built our first business together and um it was something that he had been told and regurgitated to me and it's you know some sometimes when somebody says something to you and it really resonates at the time i think we were trying to we were trying to educate before we sell which is a massive massive mistake you know only only sell where there is a there is a need where people are there is a a a number of people in a chosen market or space where they are hungry for that product or service don't try and educate don't try and do anything clever just service the need that's out there and it's it is quite literally that just fish where the fish are love that what silly thing should people do more of dance sing all of the things you were taught in that um, studio in london do you know what? It's one of those things, and I'm, I'm still not a particularly good singer or dancer, but it's one of those things where it's it's completely cathartic. So whenever you are pissed off, depressed, troubled, whatever, if you just stand up, and I often will have meetings where I will just start dancing in the middle of the meeting, and I'll just start moving my body. There's something about, there's two things. One is singing and dancing. The other is doing press-ups. Press-ups are the answer to everything. If you're ever in a mentally low funk or if you're troubled in any way, do 10 press-ups and it will go immediately. And the same with singing and dancing. And also it, just, it, it can shift the mood of a meeting. If you just stand up and start dancing, you know, things, things change. <laughs> I like that. It takes some, uh, it takes some rather sizable cojones to uh, do that. I mean, is this any meeting? Is it just internal meeting. meetings? No, any meeting, any meeting. Just stand up and start dancing, and just and 
you can you can change negative energy it's like you can you just it's the it's i guess it's an, it's like an nlp or a cbt thing where you can you can just you you, you shift that neural pathway <laughs> and then and then hopefully something magic will happen and do, and do you offer an explanation when you stand up and start dancing no no <laughs> So, um, so you just start dancing, people are looking at you, and then you sit back down and go, okay, so agenda item four, um, where are we with yep. those reports, Stephen? Literally yep. that? Yeah, I, I don't forget, I'm talking while I'm dancing, so I'll stand up and I'll just start doing like a, sh- like a white man's overbite shoulder shimmy and exercise when I go right and just carry on talking normally. <laughs> Love that. Would you rather fight one horse-sized duck or a hundred duck-sized horses? One horse-sized duck. Why? Because it it won't be able to run very fast on those spindly legs. Ah, the the legs thing. Interesting. Interesting. Um, horse-sized duck. Yeah. So you you so you would use your speed to your advantage here. Yeah, it will collapse under the weight of his belly. <laughs> true this is true how would you convince someone to do something good they didn't want to do um i wouldn't convince anybody to do anything i would um i would paint a picture of all the things that were bad that would happen should they not do that good thing nice and then final question dan you've been amazing i'm very patient with our internet connection what makes you happiest my son. Is there? Uh, can you? I mean, I feel like the answer is quite obvious, maybe. But is there a particular reason? It's um, everyone. When you are not a parent, and anybody that is a parent that talks to you about being a parent will generally say one of two things or both things at different times, which is it's hard it's tiring it's expensive it's whatever soul destroying and on the other side they'll say it's the most incredible thing they love their children it's you've got to be a parent it's you know it's the most incredible thing and as a non-parent you don't understand either of those things and then when you become a parent and and there's only two reasons to live right the pursuit of happiness and procreation they're the only two reasons to be on this planet and um, I never thought I'd be a parent. I never thought I'd have a relationship that would last long enough to be a parent in a meaningful way rather than a, an oops. And and just watching my son and uh, he levels me, he makes me smile, he makes me crack up with laughter. He's, he, it's, just, it's just an incredible um, guttural, uh, instinctive, elemental part of humanity. And there are aspects to it that you can't intellectualize or vocalize because they're they've been around for millennia and it's just it's just the reason to live and i couldn't even describe or explain how or why or what but there's something that it's and i would i would i would kill and die for that child amazing how old is he he's one he's one oh phenomenal um my little boy is uh, 18 months so oh, very, it's, very similar age. Yeah, it's a super special time. And also boys around 18 months start becoming 
good and, and interesting. I think girls get it about 11, 12 months and boys, they, they, they become interesting at about 18 months from what I can see. They, they, they're, they're little characters, they're walking, they're talking, they're starting to interact in a, in a more meaningful way for dads, I think. Yeah, he's he definitely he's learning very very fast. He's discovered the buttons on my um, stand up desk, my electronic yeah. stand up desk, which is more than powerful enough to like crush anything in its path. So that's yeah. that's a fun game. Yeah, um, stop, uh, stopping them, stopping them from finding interesting ways to kill themselves is is your only job in life. <laughs> it really, it really is. And uh, but yeah, I mean, he could. He's on a mission to to kind of do that, and I feel like he could definitely do that in a in a padded cell, as it were. So <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah letting him fall over and then so that he knows what falling over does and yeah so it's all good fun but back to you because you are definitely the star of the show dan you have been awesome um your story has been absolutely fascinating um so refreshing to 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 hear about um how you know you, you solved um the, the 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 feelings that you were feeling um you know and and moved away started a new life came back with a vengeance um and 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 how you position yourself now at that most turbulent um scary but definitely interesting time in 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 the all the businesses that you help service is truly um remarkable so thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your story martin it's a pleasure thank you for um taking the time with me too and um all the best Hey, Martin here again with an audio goodie bag of a bonus before you head off. First up, I hope you enjoyed this episode and if you did, please subscribe and follow Smarter Destiny across iTunes, YouTube, Facebook and Instagram. It really helps spread our message and you'll get valuable content along the way too. Secondly, if you have an e-commerce business or are thinking of starting one, grab a copy of my new book, 1% Secret, recommended by Kevin Harrington and a host of other elite guys even better it's free just help out with the shipping cost so head to smarterdestiny.com forward slash book to grab your free copy thanks so much and i'll see you on the next episode